Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. If you would, stand with me in honor to God's word. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, let us draw near even now. Expand our thinking, amaze us with yourself, delight us with Jesus, our Savior, our King, and our High Priest. We pray this all in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Before jumping in here, I just want to be very upfront. I've as I've been reading and studying for this all week and in weeks prior to, I found myself very challenged and encouraged by many different authors and theologians. And uh, I have taken a number of their statements. I feel like they do an excellent job wording things even better than I do. And so I, I'm going to try to give them credit, but if I don't get to all of them, I do want you to know this comes from far greater minds than my own. There's a story of a young soldier who served in the Union Army during the Civil War. Having lost both his older brother and father in the battles of Gettysburg, he decided to go to Washington, D.C. to speak to President Lincoln. He wanted to ask for an exemption from military service so he could help his sister and mother with the spring planting on the family farm. He applied for and received a furlough. When he arrived in Washington to plead his case, he went to the White House, approached the front gate, and asked to see the president. The guard on duty told him, you can't see the president, young man. Don't you know a war is going on? The president is a very busy man. Go back out there on the battle lines where you belong. So the young soldier left, discouraged, and was sitting in a park bench not far from the White House when a little boy came up to him. The boy said, soldier, you look unhappy. What's wrong? The soldier looked at the little boy and began to spill his heart out to him. He told of his father and brother being killed in the war and of the desperate situation at home. He explained that his mother and sister had no one to help them on the farm. The little boy listened and said, I can help you. He took the soldier by the hand and led him back to the front gate of the White House. Apparently, the guard didn't notice them because they weren't stopped. They walked straight to the front door of the White House and walked right in. After they got inside, they walked right past generals and high-ranking officials, and no one said even a word. The soldier could not understand this. Why didn't anyone try to stop them? Finally, they reached the Oval Office where the president was working, and the little boy didn't even knock on the door. He just walked right in and led the soldier in with him. There behind the desk was Abraham Lincoln and his secretary of state looking over battle plans that were laid out before them. You can probably guess the outcome, but we'll hold off until a little later to talk about it. The author of Hebrews here is a Jewish author. We don't know who it is exactly, but he has a great familiarity with the Old Testament, and he writes to Jewish converts to Christianity. He's encouraging them to persevere in their pursuit of Christ in spite of great suffering and trials in their lives. 
the theme of the book of Hebrews, if you wanted it summarized into one statement, is staring at the sun, S-O-N, to see life clearly. Last time we looked at the first section of the book that goes from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 4, verse 13. With Christ, the Son is the ultimate king, and thus bringing a better message from God. Now the author transitions into the second section. Christ, the Son, is the ultimate priest, and thus a better means to God. O'Brien states, Our short passage therefore serves as a conclusion to one section and the introduction to the next, the great central exposition of the high priesthood of Christ. It thus functions as, as an important overlapping transition. So that's where we're in. We're sort of in this transition place in the book from one section to the next. Our main point this morning, if you're taking notes, my actions of the Christian life are only possible to be done and to be done in light of who Jesus is as my high priest. My actions of the Christian life are only possible and to be done in light of who Jesus is as my high priest. And so this morning, we're going to talk about two commands and the whys behind them. Two exhortations the author gives us, and even more importantly, why or how we are able to accomplish those things he exhorts us to. And so first, he calls us to hold fast because of the character of your high priest. Look at verse 14. He says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast means to cling to or adhere to strongly. It's one of two words the author uses sort of interchangeably throughout the book, especially starting back in chapter 3, verse 6, where this theme begins. With that, those who have been siblings of Christ and brought into God's family by him will persevere by keeping their hope in him. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence. Being part of God's family means that we will persevere. Last we were in chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we saw that hearing God's message calls us to respond in faith, which should lead to an outflow of obedience. And ultimately, we will be judged by God for how we respond to his message in his word. Thus, we must hold fast to what he said. The author uses the term here. What are we supposed to hold to? He says we're supposed to hold fast to our confession. It refers to both doctrines and public declarations made about Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, and thus the answer to God's promises for Israel's hope. It's the message that they have heard both from and about Christ. One author states, Confession, Confessions has to do with the believer's testimony of his faith in Christ and his faithfulness to live for Christ and gain the promised blessing of rest. The Jews, back in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, who wandered in the wilderness had lost their confession, even though they were still under the cloud and redeemed from Egypt. Just what a poor testimony they were to the power of God. God brought them out, but they would not trust him to bring them in. Their unbelief had robbed them of God's blessing. Thus the author here exhorts these believers who might be tempted to cave to the, the more easy cultural norms, the pressures of the world around them. He says, instead, to continue to boldly speak out about and live differently as those who are now in Christ. Hold fast. 
Which brings us to the first why. The character of our high priest. Why should they cling to these truths when life is so hard, when there might be easier ways? The word for confession here, that they're supposed to be holding to, starts in chapter 3, verse 1, where the high priest theme of Jesus is introduced and from where this whole section is building from. He says, Therefore, my holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle, and our high priest of our confession. The author refers back to this theme, building it further, beginning by calling Christ our great high priest there in verse 14. Here, great is not just saying Jesus is better than the average priest. He's not just better than normal or above par for the human priests. O'Brien states, here it probably signifies that Jesus belongs to an entirely different priesthood from that of Aaron's line. And thus, his heavenly status and access to God are unique. It might be better stated as Christ is our unique, special, or one-of-a-kind high priest. This is not to downplay the high priests of the Old Testament either. Rather, they were the perfect picture God had given at that time. But what he's saying is there is now one who is even better than them, Christ. Notice here too, If you're like me, you you might tend to associate the idea of having a high priest with something that Israel had in the past, something that was for the Old Testament. When Jesus came, he he did away with that. But it's not true. With, With Christ's coming and the forming of the church, the foundations of the Old Testament and having a Jewish high priest are not removed, they're extended. Owen states, today we have not lost the sacrifice or the high priest, as we have them in an even superior way. Under the old covenant, Israel was granted special favor and special privilege. It would be derogatory to to Christ's glory and to the gospel's honor to suppose the church has been deprived of these privileges. So the apostle does not say there is a high priest, but rather we have a high priest. We still have a high priest today. We still need that high priest today. Christ is not just a high priest for an Old Testament Jewish audience. He is for us, but he is better in every way than before. He's better, he's greater. And the author then goes on to give three reasons why Jesus is better, why he is greater. He says first that Jesus has passed through the heavens. Unlike high priests of old who entered the Holy of Holies, passing through a veil, a curtain that ultimately was ripped at Jesus' death, Christ has entered through the veil of the heavens, the very presence of God, not this dwelling place on earth, but his heavenly abode. He has entered the real location of God's presence rather than this copy here on earth. He currently dwells in the heavenly holy of holies with the Father. One author states that because of the tense of the word past, it could be translated literally, he has passed through the heavens with the present result that he is in heaven. It's the very thing that Stephen testifies about right before his martyrdom where he looks up and it says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Unlike human high priests that come and go, 
one day a year into the Holy of Holies. Christ stands continually present in the Holy of Holies with the Father. Our high priest dwells in the very presence of God. He says that the second reason Jesus is better, he says, is his very name, Jesus. Here he focuses on Christ's humanity. We see him as a human representative able to stand in for mankind and actually able to bring us the rest that we so desire from earlier on in chapter 4. The, the names for Jesus and Joshua, Jesus here in 4.14 and Joshua in 4.8, are the same word in Greek. They both are isus, meaning Yahweh saves. The author here is doing a play on words. He's saying the old isus, Joshua, could not bring them the rest that they so wanted and desired. He says this new isus, this Jesus, is fully able to bring the rest that God wants to provide and has promised. By this human isus, we have a better access. We have a better leader, but one who is not just a better leader than Joshua. He's a representative to stand in on our behalf. The name Jesus has already appeared in chapter 2, verse 9, and 3, verse 1, where it identifies him in his human nature to show his eligibility for the office of high priest. These two verses show the correlation of Jesus' kingly coronation with his heavenly high priesthood attained because of his human suffering and death. As a man, Jesus is able to be the perfect stand-in for the rest of mankind. But Jesus is not just fully human, enabling him to be our representative. He also says he's also the son of God. He's not just any high priest. He's not just a human high priest. He is divine. He is God himself. This is the core theme of the book, stated from the beginning in chapter 1, 1 and 2. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Because Jesus is divine God himself, as God's son, he is able and worthy to be in God's perfect presence and thus represent us directly to God in the heavens rather than at some earthly location. U3 states, the title Son of God is not used until this point in the discussion. It is no doubt intentionally introduced here to combine the humanity and divinity of Jesus as the perfect qualifications for a high priest who was superior to all others. Only the divine God-man could be the great high priest we need. With all this accomplished by Jesus' character as our high priest— the author then moves on to his second exhortation. Draw near because of the kindness of your high priest. Jump, skip verse 15, jump to verse 16. He says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. This throne is a location for a king from which he rules and reigns. Worsby states, why does the writer refer to a throne at this point? He says the references to Exodus 25, the golden mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was a wooden chest covered with gold. On top of the Ark, Moses put a golden mercy seat with a cherub at each end. 
This mercy seat was God's throne where he sat in glory and ruled the nation of Israel. No Jew would miss the picture that this was to give. Another commentator writes, with the tabernacle, so back in Moses' day, with the tabernacle at its heart, the layout of the Israelite camp resembled those of ancient Near Eastern kings when they embarked on military campaigns. The divine king's tent was located in the center with his army spread around him, giving its location, given its location and lavish furnishings, the Israelites would undoubtedly have perceived the tabernacle as the royal tent, its occupants being the king. In line with this, the gold-plated Ark of the Covenant, adorned with cherubim, was viewed as the footstool of his throne. With the establishment of Israel as a theocracy and the construction of the tabernacle, the throne of God was set up on earth. What this is saying is when Aaron or any high priest after him entered the Holy of Holies, they were entering the very throne room of God, the King of all, the one who sits enthroned in heaven and over the earth, the one who earth and heaven flee from, the one who spoke all creation into existence and upholds all creation with the word of his power. The one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere at all times. Who does whatever he desires. Who is righteous and will not let the wicked go unpunished. And is angry with wickedness every day, Psalm 711 says. And who, according to verse 12, judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And according to verse 13, no creature is able to hide either themselves or their inner person from him. It is that king that we are called to draw near to. He says, let us draw near. Instead of having a human high priest as a representative for the people alone enter the holy divine king's presence, this calls each individual believer to do so. Do you feel the weight of that command? The weight of his holiness and your depravity? Can you not tremble? Can you not but tremble in holy terror? Would you not cry out with Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Woe is me, for I am ruined! I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live a peop, among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. How in the world could I dare to draw near and come into the presence of the divine king's throne room and not expect to be consumed by fire like Sodom and Gomorrah or from his holy presence like Nadab and Abihu? How could I stand in the presence of the holy king? And yet the author says, not only am I personally to draw near, but rather than that, without fear, I'm to come with confidence. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. It means courage, boldness, fearlessness, especially in the presence of a person of high rank. It, it's to be and especially to speak without fear in spite of felt disparity. But how could we ever dare to enter the divine king's presence, let alone with confidence? Brown begins to answer it this way. 
It says, God's word exposes man and God's nature is such that in his omniscient wisdom, everything is laid open to the searchlight of his scrutiny. Bereft of his sham securities and useless defenses, man stands before God as he always has been and as he really is. The person so revealed is exposed in his sin and in his weakness. What can he do about his guilt? Even when he's purified and his pilgrimage begins, how can he hope to find the strength to continue? Such a person needs help. And at this point in his exposition, our writer returns to a theme of majestic importance, the present intercessory ministry of the Lord Jesus. Our second why the kindness of our high priest. Why or how am I able to enter boldly into the throne room of God? O'Brien states, in Old Testament times, worshipers could approach the outer limits of the sanctuary. The ordinary priest could approach the altar, but only the high priest could approach the mercy seat. Christ's high priestly ministry has achieved for believers what Israel never enjoyed, namely immediate access to God and freedom to draw near to him continually. The author turns a second time to Christ's high priesthood and this role that he holds as what gives us the ability to draw near with confidence. However, the author goes even further, recognizing a possible objection After verse 14 and all that we've seen of this high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, this this great high priest, seeing the greatness of Christ as our high priest, his distance from us in heaven, and recognizing that as God's Son, he himself is God of one nature with the divine King, and thus of the same mind and hating sin and upholding righteousness. How could Christ possibly care about or, or represent a sinner like me. To this, the author turns to his kindness. He uses a double negative to intentionally express these views of Christ's inability as false. He says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. He is emphasizing that to think that Jesus is unable to sympathize with us is incorrect. He can and he does. He sympathizes with our weakness. This word is used for for any debility, weakness, or infirmity of mind or body. It's a general expression that may include physical weakness or illness, social pressure such as abuse or imprisonment, intellectual and moral weakness, or, or the general weakness of the flesh through which we fall into sin. These are not sufferings, but weaknesses, moral and physical, that predispose us to sin. Weaknesses which undermine our resistance to temptation and make it difficult for us to keep from sinning or actually even facilitate it. That sickness, pain in your body, or suffering from the loss of a loved one that continues day after day, And how is you wondering whether God really knows, cares, or is good? Those times of extreme tiredness and exhaustion, seeking to be faithful in your workplace or or caring for others that, that encourage feelings of selfishness and being owed a break 
and thus demanding things from others or getting upset when God doesn't provide what I think I need, what I think I'm owed for my output. Those times alone in our own head or on an electronic device thinking about or viewing things that that crush our soul but offer the lie and false hope of temporary satisfaction or distraction in the boredom or chaos of the moment we're trying to escape. Those weaknesses, those actions and thoughts that lead so quickly to our sinful tendencies, desires and actions that would draw our hearts away from the throne of God and outside of Christ make us wholly unworthy to enter God's presence without being destroyed. But in those weaknesses, Christ sympathizes with us. The word can be translated many different ways. To suffer, to suffer with, to have compassion, to be touched with a feeling, to be be affected with a sense, to condole or to bewail. This is far more than a knowledge of human infirmity. It is feeling it by reason of a common experience with. Christ empathizes with us. This empathy, however, extends beyond the sharing of feelings and includes the element of active help towards those who suffer. Owen states, Our high priest is intimately involved in our infirmities and weaknesses and in wrestling with them and removing them and consequentially in our troubles, sorrows, sufferings, and danger. From his own heart and affections, he gives us help and relief as is necessary. He is inwardly moved during our sufferings and trials with a sense of empathy. Christ, your high priest, feels the weight of what you are bearing this morning, what you have borne this week. How is he able to do so? How can he sympathize? Well, the author already introduced us the answer to this back in Hebrews 2. He says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Christ can sympathize with our weakness because he has experienced the very same things we do. The rest there of verse 13 says, but the one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So we see three components here of what this temptation of Christ looked like. First, he says, it's in all things and in every respect. Christ has experienced every form of tempting we will ever face, knowing hunger and sleep deprivation, facing people with expectations of him beyond what he could physically do in his human nature, having the devil directly take the things he could have most desired and place them before him in the most appetizing way possible, being slandered, falsely accused, and verbally and physically attacked by others. Christ may not have faced the exact same circumstances we do, but he has been in situations with the exact same temptations we have. He has experienced them fully. Not just in all things, but he says, like us, as we are, after the likeness of us. 
Christ not only has faced the same, same temptations we do, but he faced them in the same human nature as us. He felt the emotions. His body reacted to his circumstances. The betrayals hurt his soul and the beatings hurt his back. He experienced the full weight of temptations bearing down upon his frail, fleshly body just as we do. And yet, experiencing every possible temptation we do in the exact same weak human state as us, he did so, it says, without sin. How is this possible? To feel the full weight of sin and yet never get in, give in. Let me try to give you a picture. In his work, The Odyssey, Homer tells a saga of a valiant warrior, Odysseus, who's striving to get home after a long battle. One of the stories, in one of these stories, Odysseus and his men have to row a ship near a shoreline where creatures called sirens dwell. They, they call out to the passing sailors with such alluring songs that those sailors willingly jump overboard to their death. In the story, Odysseus has his men stop up their ears so they won't succumb to the same deadly fate, but instead he keeps his ears open and has himself tied to the mast of the ship so that he might experience hearing the siren songs while never being able to act in accordance with the deadly end. This is the picture we have of Christ here. Christ in his humanity lashed to his divinity and thus feeling the full pull of sin more than any other human being, but without ever giving in. Christ was not absent from the temptations of our world like the sailors with their ears stopped, nor was he like us when our weakness jump overboard to our death at the very first notes of the seductive song of sin. Christ, the divine God-man, felt the full weight of sin's temptation as a man, but lashed to his divinity, overcame all that sin's seductive powers could throw at him. Wolverine states, well, only one who fully resists temptation can know the extent of its force. Thus, the sinless one has a greater capacity for compassion than any sinner could have for a fellow sinner. Christ is the very best possible high priest for us as sinners. As Farrar puts it, being tempted, Christ could sympathize with us. Being sinless, he could plead for us. Thus, because of our kind high priest, we are able and called to draw near to the throne of grace. While the divine, holy, exalted, perfect king sits on the throne, we see the purpose of this throne is not ultimately judgment from verse 12, but rather grace here in verse 16. We have this hope because at this throne is where the divine Son of God, the King, our High Priest, Jesus, already is and will always continue to be. According to Hebrews 1.13, unlike the earthly High Priest who come and go, he is seated at the Father's right hand. Guthrie states that the throne stands for royalty and could certainly be overawing were it not that this main characteristic is grace. The place where God's free favor is dispensed. Christ Jesus is seen to be seated at the right hand of the throne. He is the guarantee that it is a place 
of grace. With this, though, we need to be careful in our thinking. God the Father is not against us, while God the Son is for us. The Father sent the Son so that we might have an advocate to be in his presence. In fact, we see Jesus to be our perfect, sympathetic high priest because that is the Father's plan. Back in Hebrews 2, starting in verse 9, it says, But we do not, but we, what we do see him, who was made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. He had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The Father's plan is for the Son to be our high priest. Did you hear, though, some of the words that are used in those verses? He brings sons to glory. He and those he sanctifies are from one Father. He calls them brethren, brothers. The, the, the children have flesh and blood, so he does too. So he's like his brethren, his brothers. The divine God sitting on the throne and his son standing as our high priest wants you in that holy of holies throne room as family. That is why we can draw near and why we can do so with confidence. That word confidence is the same word used back in 3.6 where we are part of his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence. Our confidence comes because we are of God's house, part of his family. When you come to this throne, it is not as God's enemy. It is not as his slave. It is not even as his servant. It is first and foremost coming as his daughter or son. Romans 8, 14 states, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Ultimately, our confidence comes from our family relationship with the triune God. And because of this, the right of priestly approach is now extended to all Christians. With Jesus, we pray, our Father who art in heaven. As Owen states, Therefore, there are two things that the apostle intends to remove and to have us delivered from as we draw near to the throne of grace with our prayers and our supplications on account of the intervention of our high priest. The first is to remove our slavery to fear, and the second is to remove our belief that we are not accepted. 
Thus, believing these truths, while at the throne, we are told to ask for and receive God's benevolent kindness. The end there of verse 16, he says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. The twofold aim of mercy and grace corresponds with the twofold necessity of life. Man needs mercy for past failures and sins and grace for present and future work, trials, and resistance to temptation. These then have the purpose to help in time of need. The word for help is the same word used back in chapter 2, for verse 18. For Christ coming to the aid of those who are tempted. It means to aid, to rescue, to, to support, to act for the good of another in their need. According to Owen, this, this kind of help intended here is assistance to people who cry for help. It could be translated to run to assist someone's cry for help. O'Brien states, the more desperate their situation is before the all-seeing eye of God, the more wonderful is his provision for their needs. Guthrie follows this. Thus, the only condition for this help is a willingness to receive it. Do you hear what is said here? We are not expected to be perfect to come to God. Rather, the only way we can come is through recognizing our weakness and Christ's provision in spite of us. Just because God is making us into the likeness of Christ does not mean God expects us to be living perfectly in Christ's likeness to have access to himself. The throne room of heaven is not for those who think themselves spiritually strong, but for those who recognize the reality of their own weakness and complete inability. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This help then is offered to all believers who would come. Notice the author's continual use of the first person plural pronouns, we, us, are, throughout all these verses. He is showing that each one of us is in desperate need, and thus each of us is invited and called to God's holy of holies, his throne room to receive divine help. He says that help comes at the very end of that verse in time of need. Literally, help in good time before it's too late. While there's still, it's time. The help we so desperately need and cry out to God for, he will supply exactly as we need it so we will not be lacking in any way. Thus, we come away with a big application from all this. We must draw near because of our high priest, because of his compassion, his sympathizing because of who he is and his greatness, because the throne room is for family of which we are, we are called to pray. Brown states it well. We dare not be prayerless. In the trials and temptations of life, we find comfort in the deep assurance that Jesus knows but the author's exposition of the high priestly ministry of Christ includes an invitation to follow him with boldness into the holy place. It is here that we receive mercy to cover the sins of yesterday, and it is also here that we find grace to meet the needs of today. 
when we do not give time each day to earnest and believing prayer, we are saying we can cope with life without divine aid. It is human arrogance at its worst. Jesus knew that he had to pray and did so gladly, necessarily, and effectively. To be prayerless is to be guilty of the worst form of practical atheism. We are saying that we believe in God, but we can do without him. It makes us careless about our former sins and heedless, heedless of our immediate needs. This passage urges us to come into the presence of God who welcomes us and a Christ who understands us. To neglect the place of prayer is to rob ourselves of immense and timely resources. For the Christian, the throne of grace is the place of help. The little boy took the soldier by the hand and led him back to the front gate of the White House. Apparently, the guard didn't notice them because they weren't stopped. They walked straight to the front door of the White House and walked in. After they got inside, they walked right past generals and high-ranking officials, and no one said a word. The soldier couldn't understand this. Why didn't anyone try to stop them? Finally, they reached the Oval Office where the president was working, and the little boy didn't even knock on the door. He just walked right in and led the soldier in with him. There behind the desk was Abraham Lincoln and his secretary of state looking over battle plans laid out before them. The president looked at the boy and then at the soldier and said, Good afternoon, Todd. Can you introduce me to your friend? And Robert Todd Lincoln, the son of the president, said, Daddy, this soldier needs to talk to you. The soldier pled his case before Mr. Lincoln, and right then and there he received the exemption he desired. Like the soldier, and actually even like Robert Todd himself, we too have access to a father ready to hear our every need and act on our behalf. May we each hold fast to our confession and draw near with boldness to our heavenly father through Christ our great high priest. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the author of life, the one who is the word, who has come, bled and died and rose again and sits at the right hand of you in the Holy of Holies, our great High priest, the God-man, worthy of all our worship, all our praise, and worthy of our trust that we would rely on you, your character, your goodness, your love toward us, shown in him your sympathetic heart toward our weakness, coming to us to draw us to you. Let us come boldly and let us hold fast because of him.